Dad, when we go to the beach, can we get an ice cream? Hey, that sounds like a great idea, I reply. Only to find that when we get there, the ice cream shop at the beach is closed for renovations. But Dad, you promised. It was closed. But you promised. Kids know that when a promise is made, promise is made, you are bound by it. And in that scenario, they know the only way that you can keep your promises promise in that situation is by getting in the car and driving until you find an ice cream shop that is open. So be careful with your promises. That's one of the lessons I've learned. But even out of the world of childhood, nearly all of us have experienced the difficulty of broken promises in our lives or promises that were never fulfilled and should have been. We're still waiting. Promises wanting or broken. I'll be there. I'll give it to you. You don't have to worry till death do us part. And sometimes these kind of disappointments come even when it's not a, a verbal promise as such. It's more of a, a very reasonable expectation or an implicit promise. We expect parents to look after the interest of, interests of their kids over themselves. We expect siblings to be loyal to their family. We expect our kids to make time for us. We expect friends to care about us and what we're going through. We expect leaders to take responsibility and not shift the blame. But life does confront us from time to time with wanting promises and at times what feels like a catalogue of disappointments. And for people of faith, like most of us, these these kind of feelings are amplified when we have them in relation to God. And, And we do. Our faith is one of promises at the centre and promises, while fuelled on hope, also have great, the great potential of doubt and fear. I have come that they may have life to the full. What if it doesn't feel like that? I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What does it mean if I doubt whether God even exists? None can snatch them from my hand. What if I'm not the them? What if I'm not a real Christian? He will forgive us our sins. What if that forgiveness is for others but not really for me? God loves you. What if I don't love him back? Or maybe it's the age-old question of why it's taking Jesus so long to return. I mean, all the evidence is that for the early Christians, the first Christians, they believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime. 2,000 years later... The clock is still ticking. Did Jesus get it wrong? Did we we get it wrong? Now, these are common and and real questions for many Christians, often not expressed, often not spoken about. But actually, they're questions that are even older than the church. Today, we continue in this story of Abram, or Abraham as he comes to be called a little later on, a a story that's set around 4,000 years ago. And like all good stories, in it we find ourselves with our questions carrying our broken promises and disappointments and doubts. And as we travel with Abram, we find God speaking to us of his son Jesus and our place in his promises and his reality. Um, When we first met Abram, God had called him to a new land and promised that from him would come a great nation, that his family would be a blessing to the whole world. But now years have passed. Abram has travelled throughout the land. He's built altars to God in various places. Uh, Last week we saw that he and Lot allocated their future parcels of land. 
But in reality, nothing had really changed. The land had not been settled. Abraham is in what we would call, in modern-day terms, homeless, living in tents, travelling from place to place, and the years are against him. Have you ever had that feeling that time is moving too fast and there's no way to rewind it? I'm sure you know that old Cat Stevens song, The Cat's in the Cradle, where at the beginning of the song, the son asks his father to play ball with him and his father says, oh, sorry, son, I'm too busy, I'll have time soon to do it. And the years move on, the story progresses, but by the end of the song, it's all reversed. When the father suddenly has time again in retirement, he he rings his son and says, I'd love to see you and the grandkids, and his son tells his father, sorry, Dad, I'm too busy, I'm sure I'll have time soon. Of course, it's a song about what really matters in life but it's a song that's that's narrative is essentially driven by the reality and the cruelty of passing time this is something that Abram seems to be feeling God has made these promises years earlier Abram would be no doubt excited by them a large family it would turn into its own great nation fertile abundant land a blessing to the whole world but what had changed On a mathematical metric, absolutely nothing. And so God comes to Abram in a dream or a vision, uh, treating Abram like a prophet, and he tells him, Abram, I'm your shield, I'm your protector, I'm your great reward, I'm your hope. And then we get here Abram's first words to God. In the whole Bible, these are Abram's first words to God. And they're essentially words of doubt. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Actually, the Hebrew is a little stronger than that. It actually says, I go to my end childless. I'm getting old, God. The clock is ticking. Time is against me. These promises matter to me deeply, but nothing's changed. And what's really strange is what happens next because God doesn't seem to reply. Abram in verse 3 has to actually rephrase the question because he doesn't get an answer. And in Hebrew storytelling, this is is a really obvious silence in the story. I wonder whether you've ever felt like that. God, where is your promise of life to the full, of satisfaction, of joy, the fruits of your kingdom? Whatever that prayer is, and you feel like you hear nothing. You receive nothing. There is no answer. Laban rephrases his question. You've given me no offspring, and and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. What does God do? Well, he does answer now, maybe hinting at the power of persistent prayer. But he doesn't answer in the way that we might expect. I'm a school chaplain, as many of you know, and uh, my classrooms are full of the doubting of God's promises. Uh, rather overwhelmingly at times. So, sir, God can't be real. Jesus never existed. Suffering proves there is no God, and on and on. And the easy response is to jump into the apologetics, to move into the rational, scientific, the evidence-driven, fact-based answers to these questions, and there's certainly a place for that. Now, there is... Uh, but, but it's interesting in this story that, that God doesn't present anything like that in response to Abram's doubts. There's no fact-based evidence presented to Abram to make him believe. Look instead at what God does. Uh, verse 4, if you've still got it open, otherwise just, just 
feel free to listen. Uh, verse 4, it says, but, but the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said, So shall your descendants be. You see what God's answer to his doubts was? He takes him outside and shows him the stars. This is how many your descendants will be. There's no proof, no evidence, no hard facts. Just a picture, a picture of the glory of the heavens. And through it, a reiteration of the promise. This is for you, Abram. Look how majestic this is. It's a picture of your future. Open your eyes to this new reality. Like many of you, I've lived in big cities my whole life. And looking up at the night sky in, in Perth, you know, it's, it's good, but it's, it's not glorious. You, you see the planets clearly and you, you see a few stars, but even on a clear night, they are almost a number that you could count if you had enough time. Now, we were camping in Calbarry a few weeks ago, and as we sat around the campfire, we looked up, and there was a night sky, a real night sky. You know, the Milky Way, painted on black, that white band so full of stars you, you, you can't see the smallest ones. Some big, some small, and, and anyone with any amount of time could never count them. But when you look at a sky like that, you are confronted with something glorious, something beautiful and majestic and overwhelming. This is your future, Abel, God says. This is my promise. I wonder if there's a lesson there as we work through doubts in our faith. Maybe the way forward isn't found in so much in, in, in searching for those rational, fact-based answers, as useful as they can be. Maybe the answer is in asking God to confront us again with the glory of his promises. Well, I think we should go on with the story, and we're going to skip verse 6 for now. It's a really important verse. When we come back to it later on, the whole thing kind of hinges on this. Uh, but what happens next in the story is we get a really similar conversation happening between God and Abram, but this time the promise is different. Now, these are two different days. Uh, we know this because the first happens at night, the second happens at sundown. But, uh, but the, the first, in the first episode, the story, the promises, was about descendants, and in this one it's all about land. God speaks to Abram again in verse 7, saying that he brought Abram out of his homeland, Ur of the Chaldeans, into this new land to take as his possession. Abram speaks again, and again we get words of doubt. O oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And what follows again is no apologetic, but instead a very strange-looking ceremony. Abram takes animals and cuts them in half, except for the birds. And then these carrion birds come down to feast on the dead animals, but Abram drives them away. And then Abram falls into this unusual deep sleep. It's the same kind of sleep that Adam falls into when Eve is made. God speaks promises again. Uh, we see those in verse 13. To, to summarize, he, he essentially says, your descendants are going to be slaves in Egypt. I'm going to free them. They'll come out and they'll take this land. Now, if this isn't strange enough for you, then this big gloom comes on the scene. Then a, a meditating... A, 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 sorry, a, um, le, a, I've lost my language. Levitating, that's the word. Uh, levitating fire pot and flaming torch appear 
and pass between the dead animals. Now, we don't want to over-explain this. Uh, part of the point of it is that there's mystery here. It's mysterious because God is, is, is here in a special way. But there are some things that we, we, we do understand. The cutting up of the animals. Now, this is how you do a contract in the ancient Near East. You know, you make a deal with someone. They say, do you want to shake on it? You're like, no, let's not do that. They say, okay, we can sign a contract. No, let's not do that. Well, what do we do then? Okay, let's cut up some dead animals, lay them out, and we'll walk between them. Okay, that sounds like a great idea. This is what, this is what they did, right? Um, and it was because the implicit thing that was going on was that you were saying, if I break this promise, what happened to these animals? I'm calling upon myself. And so God is the firepot and the torch, and amazingly lowers himself to even participate this in this and bind himself in this way. And interestingly, he's the only one that does it. It's all about him keeping his promise to us. And then the story concludes. And, and now the promises change. In verse 18, our version reads, To your descendants I give this land. But, but the Hebrew is even stronger. It has it like this. To your descendants I have given this land. It's a done deal. It's all yours. It's as good as done. It's sure. Uh, Abraham, Abraham in this story is confronted with two images when he faces doubts. Uh, one's that glorious night sky and the other is this mysterious covenant ceremony. And, and these glorious images help him. They, they push him to believe. Now it's interesting that, that God, and wonderful that God has provided us, the church, with images like this too. Well, not the night sky specifically, we do share each week in communion. You know, a beautiful image of the love of Christ for us and giving up his body and blood. An image that we taste and goes within us and feeds us, reminding us that his death really was for us. Communion, I think, functions a little like the night sky did for Abram. It gives us a, a beautiful picture of God's promises to us. And similarly, Abram has this strange covenant ceremony. We have baptism, our strange covenant ceremony. A ceremony that tells us of God's promises to us to forgive our sins, to accept us fully into his family. And so the great reformer Martin Luther once wrote, the only way to drive away the devil is through faith in Christ, by saying, I have been baptised, I am a Christian. In the same way Abram could say, I know I'll have a big family because God showed me the night sky. And I know I'll inherit this land because the firepot passed through the carcasses of animals in my dream. I think the sacraments are largely our gifts to us from God to help us to see the reality of his promises. Well, how exactly does Abram respond? Uh, it was uh, George, my middle son's birthday on Friday. He was the one at the end that loves to put up his hand. Um, he, he turned seven and he went to sleep that night knowing that when he woke up in the morning it was going to be his birthday. And what every kid does when they wake up on their birthday is they get up and they look around for presents. It's exactly what he did. He believed us when we told him that it was his birthday and he woke up expecting it to be, to be so. And Abram does the same. He continues on in his life in expectation of God's gifts to him. And we're at verse 6 now, back at verse 6. It says, He believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
Abram trusted in the Lord. He believed him. He was convinced that God was able and would do what he said he would do, that God would fulfill his promises. The reason why I think this story features us is that we too are confronted with a God who says to each of us and to all of us, I am your shield, your very great reward. God says that to you. We are confronted with promises, and I think actually the same promises that Abram had, essentially. Jesus in John chapter 8 says, Abram saw my day, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He saw my day and rejoiced. As Abram looked into the night sky and he thought about his descendants, and as he thought about his family being a blessing to the world, as he thought about his heir, whether he knew it or not, he was thinking on Christ, his heir the one who brings blessing to all creation. As he looked over his land and as he built altars around it, as he worshipped God throughout it and looked forward to a future when his people would inherit it, whether he knew it or not, he was looking to the new creation, the heavenly kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom of eternal life. Well, they're our promises too, that all our hopes are met in Christ, that he is the fulfilment of all humanity longs for and desires, that he is a kingdom ready for us to inherit, a kingdom of peace and of joy. They're our promises. And so we need to ask, do you believe the Lord? Do I believe the Lord? Do you think God can do that? Do you expect it like a child expects their birthday? Because if you do, God says you're righteous. You were right with him. You don't need to do anything as such. Jesus has done it all. His righteousness is yours. You are his. He has you. And even when it seems like God's promises aren't with you, it seems like this life isn't what you quite expected. When you don't feel God close to you like you want to, when, when life suffers disappointments, well, even then, and maybe especially then we can remember Abram who as he approached his end he doubted and asked the Lord why and how but in the end he believed against all hope against all the evidence imagine meeting a 90 or 100 year old man this afternoon and and him saying to you oh you went to church this morning well actually I had this really interesting conversation with God where he said I was going to have more children than the stars in the sky it would be madness against all this Abram believed he lived in expectation imagine meeting a person in 2021 believing that Jesus existed and was raised from the dead it's madness isn't it against all this you believe and God says you are mine now this is not a story it's asking you to do much at all it's not asking you to go and give to the poor or convert your friends or pray for hours on end, you know, all good things, but it's simply asking you to hope. That's it. To live in expectation of God's blessing. To live in expectation of the very real power of the resurrection in your life. To change you and to heal you, to give you courage toward the future. A future of resurrection for the world. So it is that that Paul writes in Romans on this very story, the the section we read uh, earlier, telling us that this story is not just about Abram 
but it's about those who believe in the resurrection of Christ. And so he writes, Abram's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. And so we walk with Abram this morning. We journey on. While it seems time may be against us, while we face life's disappointments and doubts, we live in hope and expectation of a better land and a better time. And that hope is our comfort and our joy and our courage as we wander throughout the land on the road to eternal life. I want to finish with an excerpt from the German theologian Jürgen Moltmann's book, Theology of Hope. When I first read this excerpt, probably 10 years ago, I almost fell off my chair because it spoke with such clarity and with such beauty of our hope in the promises of God and their effect on our present. He writes this. Does this hope cheat humanity of the happiness of the the present? How could it do so? For hope is itself the happiness of the present. It pronounces the poor blessed, receives the weary and heavy laden, the humbled and the wronged, the hungry and the dying, because it perceives the arrival of the kingdom for them. Expectation makes life good, for in expectation a person can accept their whole present and find joy not only in its joy, but also in its sorrow. Happiness, not only in its happiness, but also in its pain. Thus hope goes on its way through the midst of happiness and pain because in the promises of God it can see a future for those wounded by change, the dying and the dead. May the promises of God and our hope and expectation of their fulfilment guide you on your journey in the weeks and months ahead.